And hello, Naomi. Thank you for joining us on Poured Over. I have a million questions, but this is going to air just as the book is coming out. So can we stay spoiler free? Is that okay? Yes, absolutely. We'll do our best. Ella's back. I love this girl. She's prickly. She doesn't really care what people think of her. She knows she's dangerous, but she really likes her friends. And she's pretty fond of that Orion Lake kid. And she's really trying to keep her power in check so she doesn't kill everyone she knows. So yeah, good, good things to do. Exactly. That's our basic premise. But can you set up this book for readers, please? I'm having a little bit of a mental shift because actually, literally right now, I am in the midst of writing book three. Um, So I'm like, wait, what happened in book two? One of the interesting things was when I set out to write the trilogy, the Skull Mm -hmm. trilogy, one of the huge influences was, of course, the magic school trope. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why it is, in fact, in separate books as opposed to, you know, a standalone novel, which that's, in fact, why I'm writing book three right now and why I've written a large quantity of book two before book one even came out that I like sort of telling a unified story. But one of the wonderful things about that magic boarding school trope is the punctuation of the end of the year. Mm -hmm. And that punctuation reflects a kind of punctuation that I think most of us have experienced in our lives as children, where the sense of the end of the year, the end of the school year was a really significant beat in your life. And especially as a child, provides this kind of framework that divides your life up and that allows you to kind of put down a measuring point in a way and compare yourself between these two parts of your life, fifth grade, sixth grade, that change is really quite meaningful. And I think that's a meaning that even if you're not literally, obviously, you know, as most of my adult readers are not, not still in school anymore, you still remember it. You know, Mm -hmm. I feel like we all have that kind of beat in our bones a little Mm -hmm. bit. And the value of that is, is that it really kind of marks, marks a place where you can stop and recognize changes in yourself. To me, the key moment in book one, which now I feel like I I can spoil her a little bit, is the moment where Elle is forced to confront and recognize the fact that she does not actually want to go and live in an enclave. That in fact, she wants to follow her mother's path, that essentially she's resisting being complicit, even in a way at the cost of recognizing that she's taking enormous risk with herself. And that, in fact, up to then, Elle has in many ways been lying to herself in a defensive way, where the Scalamont is such a terrible place, and it's so deadly, and she wants to live, you know, she wants to make it out. And so she's been telling herself this story of how one day she's going to demonstrate her power and Mm -hmm. get an alliance and get into enclaves, no problem. And she keeps sort of pushing that day off further and further and further until finally she comes to a point where she is forced to recognize where Adya comes to her and is like, why haven't you told anyone? And she has to literally say out loud and to herself for the first time, I'm not going to do that. And that in a way, it's a recognition that she's been talking this good game to the reader and to herself about how she's this cold, strategic, tough as nails, like she's she doesn't care about other people when in fact she cares tremendously and she feels her isolation tremendously. And what she really wants is a friend and she hasn't been able to have a friend. And so book two, in a way, is Elle having let go of that sort of false picture of herself. Book mm-hmm. two for me is about how Elle, you know, it was sort of like, I do have friends and mm-hmm. I do care about people mm-hmm. and I do want to be a good person. 
I don't want to sort of give in. I don't want to compromise where in a way, book one is her like still trying to pretend that one day she's going to compromise. Book two is in a way her sort of refusing to compromise. Not only is it her refusing to compromise, but it's really wonderful to see the evolution of this character and how she sort of puts the pieces together. Did you know this was going to be a trilogy when you sat down to start writing? I mean, you've been clear that you don't outline. You yes. like the endings revealed as they're revealed. Yep. But you had to build a world. You created a language. I mean, the characters are great. Did you know what you were doing when you sat down? Or did you think, here's this girl, and I'm just going to start writing and see what happens? So I did start writing. You know, whenever I, I start a new book project, before I ever do a contract, I always write about 15, 20,000 words of it for myself. Because uh -huh. until I've written that much, I don't know that it's going. I don't know if I want to spend two, three years of my life with it. But in this case, so I wrote that, I think, quite a while ago, like back in 2016, I vaguely feel like I wrote it, the first chunk of book one. And at the time, I thought it was going to be two books. I thought it was going to be a duology. And I sort of thought I had a very clear understanding of what was going to happen at the end of book one. And I started writing book one and I got to the end and that was not what had happened. <laughs> Actually, I think I was about 70% of the way through writing book one when I wrote the final scene, you know, that final scene with the induction mm -hmm. where Elle gets her, her message from the outside world. Um, and I wrote it and I wrote that, that scene and I was like, well, this is completely incompatible with what I thought the ending of the book was going to be, the scene, but it is also the end of this mm -hmm. book. And it is absolutely the right place that this story is going. And so I realized, okay, it's got to be three books. And in fact, the ending of book two, which I won't spoil, Mm -hmm. is basically what I thought the ending of book one was going to be. So I wasn't wrong that that's where I was going, but mm -hmm. I was wrong about how I needed to get there. And then in fact, having figured out that that was going to be the ending, the rest of, of book one suddenly became much more clear to me because it had been feeling kind of like this isn't going to get me to where I'm, I need to go mm -hmm. in a certain way. And I was sort of wrestling with it. But once I, I knew where I was, in fact, going, then everything else became much more clear. It was going to be a duology because mm -hmm. I knew from the beginning that I wanted the punctuation, mm -hmm. but it grew another book. <laughs> Sweeping Dark Fantasy, amazing world building. I know I alluded to that earlier. The language, the setting, the rules of engagement between these kids. It's all really precise and exciting and wild. Where do you start? What's your favorite part of this world? And how did you sort out the architecture of the Scholomance? I'll answer the question that I can answer because okay. to be honest, it's sort of one of the things that people ask you, like, where does this idea come from? And the answer is, it comes from the Time Life book that I found in my middle school library when I was 10 years old. It comes from the footnote about the Scholomance in the annotated Dracula that I used to read in my aunt and uncle's house on Long Island during family gatherings when I was a kid. It comes from, not just from Harry Potter, but from Harry Potter fandom and mm -hmm. the vast quantities of Harry Potter fanfic that I have read and written. It comes from Omelas, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas by Ursula Le Guin. It comes from being the parent of a child in school. And it comes from the politics in the U.S., Story is the way that I process a lot. And so it's not calculated for me very much. It's generally, I sit down and the words come. And when I write down enough of them to figure out what I'm doing, mm -hmm. then I go back and fix the ones that I wrote down that turn out to have been wrong. 
that's basically how I work. And in terms of the architecture, that is sort of a useful kind of example, which is when I started writing it, Elle's in this dark room. My mental image of the Scalamonts was very much defined by the sort of the sense of the void, which comes from that Time Life book that I mentioned, where Mm -hmm. there was one double page sort of spread with this picture of a room that was just pitch black. You couldn't see the walls. You couldn't see anything. There were a handful of people in it studying in like almost monk's robes with their faces completely obscured by hoods. So you couldn't see their faces. You could only see their Mm -hmm. hands and their hoods. And the description on the side said there were no teachers. The scholars' questions were answered by letters of flame that appeared in the dark around them. So this sense of this place removed from the world that was sort of in this terrible sort of mystical void was one of the defining images for me. And so Mm -hmm. Elle starts her career. This first scene is in this cell where she's sitting in this cell. And if you say, describe a magic school to people, they'd describe something like Hogwarts, a wizard school. It would look like that. It would look like this medieval fortress in our heads. And it was that in my own head a little bit, even though I kind of felt like that wasn't right. That wasn't quite correct. And the more that I sort of thought about the school, the more it connected for me really to industrialization in a Mm -hmm. lot of ways. And specifically, there's some wonderful photos that you find if you look around for the the construction of the Titanic and you see like the person this big, like a tiny, tiny little figure Mm -hmm. next to this gargantuan sort of gear or propeller. And it's just this sense of something that can grind you up, this kind of machinery that just dwarfs the scale that is not on a human scale, that is built by humans, but is not human. And I felt like that was something that I was trying to get to. And basically, I think I was about halfway through the book. And one of my beta readers was asking me, so how does this school work? How does this all sort of happen? And by then, I'd already realized, right, that this school had been very deliberately built for this purpose in order to keep the children inside from being eaten by monsters. And that all the terribleness of it was not so much deliberate as it was an unavoidable side effect of what you're trying to do, which is you're trying to protect these children. Mm -hmm. And in fact, from quite early on, the sense that the children were sort of being hunted and vulnerable, and that you had to sort of bottleneck it was one of the kind of fundamental, fundamental pieces. And until then, I'd been quite sort of still holding on to that magic school trope, the idea that the end of the school year comes, and you you go home for Mm -hmm. the summer. In a way, I was forced to to realize, wait, no, that doesn't make sense. They don't go home for the summer. They can't go home. They come into the school and they leave again only when they've become strong enough to protect themselves. And all the implications of that, that's kind of what I mean when I say I don't outline in that, you know, very often I do find for myself that when I'm writing a story like this, when I'm world building, you don't necessarily always realize the implications of what you write in a scene until you have sort of lived in it a little bit until you're writing and the details accumulate and suddenly you're forced to confront that something that you might have planned in this sort of vague way in your head turns out to just be completely wrong, that it just doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. Those things all kind of accumulated. I'm like, all right, they don't leave. What happens is they're in this school, they come in, what's the safest place as high up as you go? So that's where the freshmen go. 
And then you're on these different levels. And the lower down you get, the more dangerous it gets. So you have the seniors on the lower level. And then you want this sort of narrow bottleneck, really. The smallest opening that you can possibly allow between the real world and the rest of the school. So how do the seniors get down there? And I sort of suddenly envisioned the dormitories are on the outside and they rotate down like a screw. And that's where the image of the screw, which you see in the blueprints, obviously, really immediately suddenly was like, okay, yes, right. That's what makes sense. And as soon as I had that image, then the whole rest of the school sort of built itself. And partly I realized I'd already kind of defined that there were about 1,600 kids coming in each year. I decided quite early on that this was the school, the only school for the entire world, that there's not really that many wizards in the world, but the ones that are, many of them have sort of clubbed together into these enclaves. And so 1,600 kids represents a substantial fraction of the wizard kids born each year, but it sort of felt big enough to do that without either sort of having the sense that there's an entire sort of second population in the world of wizards. There isn't. They're quite a small hiding minority, but that there are enough of them to sort of sustain this place. And then I figured out basically what's the absolute minimum space that you could give a child. And I looked at the tiniest dorm rooms in the world and basically like seven feet is sort of like the minimum width to just have a bed and a desk and be able to go in, you know, the actual smallest space that you can really allot somebody. And based on that, I literally just did math to figure out the radius of the dormitory rooms. Mm -hmm. And that told me essentially the radius of the, of the school inside and the school, it becomes viscerally just monstrous. It's so huge. It's so big based on that constraint. And there are the sense of like these empty spaces and the fact that the school's material is almost stretched thin over them. And that all in a way kind of grew out of the initial premise that mm-hmm. the students are being hidden behind a bottleneck to keep them from monsters. Does that mean you started building the world first or did you start with character first? You know, for me, character, plot, and world all grow at the same time. I start with a voice. I start with a character telling me something about their world, not always in first person, but in terms of what they are seeing. Mm -hmm. I usually like either first person or a tight third. And Mm -hmm. so I try to stay quite close to a character's field of view. If you are in a character's head, I don't go around saying like, here I am in a house in, you know, the United States of America and the sunlight is yellow and there are green trees. There's so much that you just don't think about and that take for granted in your everyday sort of existence. And that's what a character does when you get into their head. And even if they are in a world that is radically different from ours, as long as you're sort of staying close to the character, you really don't need to think about or worry about anything except what is important to that character in that moment. So what that does is for me as a writer is it means that I don't have to know everything about where Elle is. Elle is in a dorm room. There is a void out there and there's a monster disintegrating on her floor. And she's alone in this room. And there's a boy who's just killed this monster and she's mad at him and she wants him dead. So I start with the first line. I start with that first line. And it's like, I decided Orion Lake had to die after the second time he saved my life. Immediately, I'm interested. I'm like, well, why do you want him dead? You know, it immediately tells me something about Elle. And 
then, you know, seeing Orion there, having just killed this monster on her floor, and he's sweaty, and he's, you know, trying to be nice and polite to her. And she's just like, I hate you, get out. And he's sort of like, I I don't understand. And, you know, and we ourselves don't understand. That's the pleasure. And then Elle trying to get her room clean. Even as I write that scene, I write a sentence and it tells me something about the world. In a way, I sort of let the words come. I let the sentence come. And then I almost read the sentence. I'm like, so what does actually that imply? I sort of ask myself at every step, what does this tell me about the world? And so knowing that this monster was here, knowing that Orion's here, and obviously I remembered my images of the Scalamonts as well. And so I was like, okay, there is no grown-up. Nobody's coming to save you. You are in this school and you are in super danger all the time. And there's nobody. And Orion is bizarre because he's the one hero in this place because nobody else operates like that because they're all children. It's terrible. And they all just want to survive. And literally, they've probably been sent here by parents, mostly telling them, you do anything you have to do to get back out. Mm -hmm. Was that as a parent, that's what you would tell your child because that's Mm -hmm. what you want your child to do. So that's in a way, it literally builds itself piece by piece. And so knowing that Elle is in this room and she's trying to clean it, And she's annoyed. So it couldn't be easy for her to clean it. It couldn't be just like a wave your hand and whisk it away. But if you've got magic, cleaning should seems like it should not be that hard. So it's got to be hard for her. Why is it Mm -hmm. hard for her? Because she can literally like set things on fire, but she can't clean her room. You know, so why is she so upset about this? Well, she's so upset about this because she thought this could have been an opportunity for her to demonstrate and get herself out of this terrible place. Except it's not really that. It's more like, you know, she just doesn't want to be saved by someone and feel like she owes them something and that she then can't pay back. And obviously, and she's also just very mistrustful. And so in a way that all happens at the same time, you know, I build the piece of the world that I need for a given scene. I generally, you know, I try and plant details for myself, some of which I then pick up later on Mm -hmm. and some of which I drop and go by the wayside later on. And then I end up going back and pruning them out. And then when my readers and my editor read the book, they'd say, I don't understand. So how does this work? And sometimes I will say, I don't know yet. I have to wait, wait, wait until it becomes important. It's not important right now. So I'm not going to tell you. For instance, one of the things in book one that my editor specifically asked me about, she was like, I don't quite get where was Elle before she came to the Scalamonts, how do wizards interact with regular people? Was she just going to regular school? What about when she was being hunted by monsters? So thinking about how to answer that question, that was when I realized I'd already sort of been writing things in the book about the foundational quality of belief in this world, that part of the reason that magic works and one of the ways that you make magic work is by believing that it's going to work. And believing in sort of the sense, not of faith, but of knowledge. And I realized, okay, wait, so we, or real people in the real Mm -hmm. world, do Mm -hmm. not believe in magic. Even if kind of we say we believe in magic, we don't. We we still are like, wait, how could that happen? And you still don't actually believe in it. You don't expect it. And I realized, okay, that means that if it's very hard to cast spells in front of people who aren't wizards, It should also be very hard for monsters 
to exist in front of people who aren't wizards. And that means that going to public school with mundane kids is in fact a very good safe place for a wizard kid to be. It just means that you yourself don't get to cast magic. You Mm -hmm. yourself don't get to use spells. And that must be very frustrating and difficult, right? But obviously it's still safe. So in a way, answering that question forced me to nail down quite a few important things. Then I sort of relied on and used and wove into the fabric of the rest of the book and the next book and book three. So when you think about it, that's actually a really core piece of world building. I didn't come up with it until really quite late in the process, but that's because I didn't need it to write the story. And I do believe fundamentally that it's better to build your world as you need it. And obviously when something really good comes to you, you put it in and you use it, but in a way when those moments come, that's the real magic. And you sort of have to invite that magic by just going on with your story and building the parts of your world that you do need very immediately for your story. Elle goes on an incredible journey in these two books. And especially, I'm so excited for people to read The Last Graduate because when they see the evolution of Elle in this book, it's great. (laughs) But is she the first character who appeared to you? Oh, yes. Okay. So you knew you were building this book around this woman or this girl. I mean, she is a girl when you start. She's 16 when you open the first book and she is about to graduate from the school of Manson. How did she show up? She showed up and obviously Anna Ryan showed up sort of along with her. And I guess the thing is, the true answer is that she showed up when I wrote the first line of the book and I learned more about her as I kept going. But I will say that one of the things is obviously, you know, I sort of already talked about how I'm using the magic boarding school trope. One Mm -hmm. of the other tropes, which again, is another key element of Harry Potter is not just magic boarding school, but the chosen one trope that's from Star Wars, from so much modern media. Mm -hmm. And I'm a little bit like, who's choosing? And that's to me, the big gaping question whenever you have this chosen one trope. And because I don't believe in it, you can choose somebody but they don't have to go. You can say you're chosen, but in a way, ultimately, it's the person who has to do the choosing. And yet that trope is so powerful. You know, so in here, Orion and Elle are both chosen, right? Explicitly. Other people have literally said, you have a destiny. They have identified them. You know, Orion, you are the greatest hero of our generation. Everybody sort of embraces him for this. And he is somebody who's like, all right, great. Oh, I am the chosen one. I'm going to be the hero. I'm doing it. Where Elle has been given the literal reverse prophecy that she's the dark queen of their generation. Orion is in many ways like her natural nemesis. And yet she's violently and angrily and bitterly rejecting her destiny and sort of actively fighting against it. But she still sort of thinks of herself as having this destiny. And she doesn't she doesn't quite know what to do with this other than she's just rejecting it and trying to hold it off and trying her best to be a good person and not actually do these things. And yet what I think becomes clearer as the books go on is the sense in which it is a terror living in her every single minute of her life, right? Mm -hmm. Is this the minute that I tip over the edge and start killing people and start being a monster. You know, that that sort of deep, deep fear inside herself that is in fact a major motivator for her. And so in a way that became clear to me very early on. And so she became clear with it. And obviously I just felt very clearly as I built her little by little, 
that this was an extremely good person afraid of turning into an extremely bad person, but also at the same time, a human being who is in a terrible place, who is in an absolutely monstrous situation in which if these children went like Lord of the Flies on each other and you got them out of this place, you would not blame them. Like mm-hmm. whatever any of these children did, you would never put any of them on trial in a way. You would take them out and like say, here, have all the therapy in the world. And yet at the same time, the children are the only ones here. They're the only ones with agency. And she knows that she doesn't have the luxury in a way of being bad while she's in school and then trying to become a better person afterwards. She doesn't have the luxury of telling herself that she could do that because she knows once she starts, she's on a scale of just unforgivableness. And yet at the same time, she sort of feels like everybody else is being absolutely horrible. If she was even as horrible to the other kids as they are to her in passing, where they feel entitled literally to take her for everything she's got and shove her in their way as they flee a monster or knock her down in the hallway and and destroy her supplies. If she was just merely that bad, she would be, which in a way you feel justified in being, but if she was just that bad, she would be an absolute horrible monster. And yet at the same time, it's really hard, I think, to not be, you know, bad back to people. in a way, especially as a child. And so those things became very fundamental to me about her. I love Elle myself. I think she's just an unbelievable person in the end, like a really great person. That's kind of the best that I can do at describing where she came from. I had a note in the margins as I was working through last graduate. Am I really supposed to believe she's a monster? (laughs) She has a couple of big moments in this new book, which readers will discover and they will be delighted or surprised, or they will feel however they feel when they see it. But I do feel like you're writing about a damaged kid who's just looking for her place in the world. There happens to be magic, but there is a lot of very realistic grounding in this trilogy. I mean, granted, you're working on the third volume, but I have a slight idea of where some of it is going. But one of the things I love about your work too, and I'm going to include Uprooted and Spinning Silver for a second, because you've been very sort of vocal about this idea that young women aren't allowed to be selfishly angry. And that is something that actually isolates Elle quite a bit in the first book. And it's, again, she has an evolution in the second book. I'm not really giving anything away there, but watching her go from someone who is actually justifiably angry at her situation. She's got every right in the world. And yet here we are having this conversation again, where it's like, well, it's rude for girls to be angry. (laughs) Out of place for girls to be angry. And it's like, well, why can't girls be angry? There's a lot to be angry about. And here she's being told, from multiple sources that she is the absolute worst. And yet, honestly, she's holding back in a lot of ways. How do you balance those ideas? How do you let Elle speak for herself without losing sight of sort of a larger story that you're trying to tell? One of the things, right, to sort of take a step back, Mm -hmm. when you're telling the story of the sort of Bildungsroman story, the story of coming Mm -hmm. of age, and in a way, this story is the story of surviving adolescence. It is the story of getting through adolescence as a person that you want to be for the rest of your life. That is a struggle that not everyone actually survives in that metaphorical sense, and obviously sometimes not in a literal sense. But what the Scholomance effectively does is that it takes, it takes the experience that you have as an adolescent, and that most of us, in fact, as adolescents have had by going through school, going through a sort of institutionalized school process with our peers, 
as the primary sort of people around us, that this is the, the process that we have all survived and struggled to survive and struggled to form ourselves out of writ large, where the things that you feel when you're in that moment become literalized in the book to literal monsters, literal death, literal violence. And so I think in many ways that using that allows the catharsis for the reader in a way, experiencing and feeling with the characters more vividly because it felt that way while you were in it. You know, the idea of like seating in the cafeteria is in fact an act of war where it absolutely feels that way when you're a kid and you're alone with the, in the cafeteria with your tray and like, who's going to let me sit with them? That is the worst and the most terrible and important thing in your life. And of course, it is a vast luxury for that to be the worst and most terrible thing in your life, except in this school, it's not. It literally is the worst. And so in a way, I think similarly with Elle, she isn't allowed to get angry. She is forced to not truly let herself be angry in this completely unfair way. And yet she herself, at the same time, she herself is in this position where she has to recognize, I've got a right to be angry. I've got a right to hate all of y'all. Mm -hmm. I have a right to shove you off behind me and keep going. And yet, this is the world. This is the world that I live in. This is the reality. And if I do that, then I am leaving the world as mm -hmm. it is, this bad world that hurts me. And so I can blame either you, the individual next to me, or I can look at the systems around me. I can look at the institutions around me and blame them and say, I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to not discard you, the individual. Instead, I'm going to aim at the institution. You know, to be honest, that I think is the right answer. That it is, in fact, my answer that what you have to do is aim at the system as opposed to aim at the immediate person. And that in a lot of ways, the immediate person becomes the distraction from the system. That I would say is kind of what the journey that Elle has to make. And in a way, you know, one of the things is that what enables her to make that journey is because she does have this truly disproportionate power. And it seems bewildering, in fact. She's just on a totally different level. And in a way, that is also not fair. That's sort of, you know, why? And yet then the question becomes a little bit to those to whom much is given, much is expected. And in a way, that is a key piece of her. But at the same time, obviously, it's very satisfying as a writer to work with a character who has tremendous amounts of power because it makes them a wonderful locus in a way for your storytelling. But at the same time, as an actual person in our world, I don't actually want any individual to have that much power. I do, in fact, think that it's a terrible, terrible idea. And, you know, nobody, nobody in their right mind would voluntarily have said, yes, let's give this one person, this one teenage girl, all this power. And I don't want to sort of ignore that. I don't want to lie about that and sort of sweep it under the rug and make it be like, and Elle's actually 100% fine as a custodian for this power. And Elle is always going to make good decisions. No, not necessarily. She is a human being and she doesn't have perfect information. There's one key moment for me in book two that I will mm -hmm. dance around, not okay. spoiling, where she makes 
what clearly seems like a locally good decision, a locally mm-hmm. noble decision even. Yeah. But afterwards, she's forced to recognize that it's entirely possible that the consequence of her locally good decision not to actively cause a certain kind of harm, cause that harm to occur to a bunch of totally different people who were nowhere near her and she didn't see them. And in a way, she's like, did I do the right thing? Did I do the right thing to not hurt these people who are right in front of me who'd actually done a really bad thing to me? And that in a way, everybody would have said, well, it was totally self-defense, no matter how bad a thing I did to them. But am I justified in having done that, even though these people over here got hurt in return, who hadn't done anything to me? And at the same time, she kind of makes the call that she's going to do the thing in front of her, that she's not going to be paralyzed by this. Mm -hmm. She makes the choice to go ahead and keep acting. And the thing is, I do actually, me personally, right, which is not me as the the writer of the necessarily, but me personally, I feel like that's my feeling that you have to just do the thing that you can do. You know, you can't just sit there and be paralyzed by the thought. I mean, obviously you shouldn't do something if you know something bad necessarily is going to happen, but at the same time, you kind of can't completely paralyze yourself and not do anything. It's better to do something and do the best you can. But at the same time, when you have the outsized power that Elle has, it becomes a, a, a terrible burden and a terrible danger because- it's like if you screw up, what's the worst thing that happens? There's a there's a typo in my book. I've written a bad book. Um, somebody throws it across the room. Worst thing L does, it's like, oh whoop, you blew up a building. That's right. that's a bad thing. That's that's a bad amount of power to have. I'm gonna switch gears quickly for a second because right. you and I share a love of Catherine Arden's Winter Night series. Baron the Nightingale. I love that book. I really, I cannot tell you how many people I press that book on. So can we talk about other writers who've influenced you? I know you and she have a a lovely back and forth going, but who are some of the writers you love? Who are you reading? Who are you recommending? Who are your influences? One of the odd things is that I've had much less time to read since I started writing full time. And I really struggled, frankly, most recently in the pandemic to like claw out time for reading. And it's just been kind of brutal. But I would say that I just actually finished reading uh, Peter Brett's new book, The Desert Prince. Peter and I are interesting because we, we love doing panels together because our processes are as diametrically opposed as two human beings who still both produce books could be. He outlines super exhaustively And if I do write an outline, I burn it the next day. (laughs) But what I found with this book that I thought, you know, that's just amazing was like the compulsive pace of it. And that's one of those things where things just move at this, at the speed. And I love seeing that, that kind of pace in a book. I will say as an influence, one of the things that I also tend to do when I don't have a lot of time to read is reread. I have been rereading Ursula Le Guin a lot. And in fact, you know, I sort of mentioned briefly that one of the main influences on this book was Omelas. And I mean, I feel like I reread Omelas actually in the fall just before she passed away. I reread it about like six or seven times. And I wrote a bunch of fanfic that was sort of connected to it. Mm -hmm. And then I had like a piece of this book already. But when I picked it up again, it was like a really loud voice in me as one of the things in this. And again, I don't know that that's necessarily incredibly visible. But, you know, obviously the story of Omelas, for those who have not read it, it's a sort of talking about the utilitarian philosophy and about the ultimate sort of pinnacle of utopia, where the idea is that 
you have put all the misery in the world, all the misery, all the suffering on one person, on one child that you have chained in the basement of your beautiful shining city. All the children of the city have to come and look at the child in the basement when they come of age, essentially, and be told that the child has to stay in that basement or otherwise all of Omelas will be destroyed. And Omelas is otherwise a perfect city. It's not that nobody is ever hurt, but no one is suffering in an ongoing way. It is a place of joy. It is a place of caring. It is a place where people love one another and love their children and nobody is abused. And it's a parable, you know, and you're like, but why can't you just take this child? It doesn't feel like a world in which there's literal magic. It is a parable in the sense that you're looking at suffering, you're recognizing that suffering is happening, and you're minimizing suffering to the smallest possible number of people. And everybody is sort of brought along to that and forced to do that by looking at this child in the cellar. And that is why the child has to be there. And at the same time, and most people sort of read this, and then the story ends with talking about the ones who walk away from Omelas, which is Mm -hmm. people who go and look at the child and they go home. And then as an adult, they go back and look at the child again, and then they go home and they leave. They leave Omelas and they walk away and nobody knows where they're going. And the implication is that these are people who have figured out something beyond Omelas, Mm -hmm. something better than Mm -hmm. Omelas. But at the same time, there is no simple answer. There is nothing. The story never shows you what's beyond Omelas. And you don't know, is it? Is there something? I read it myself as a teenager. Mm -hmm. And reading it again, sort of the piece that was loudest to me was the sense in which Omelas really is better than our world, which Mm -hmm. the story in a way, most people read it and are like, I would walk away from Omelas. And I'm like, well, you don't get to walk away from Omelas. We don't live in Omelas. In our world, there are a million basements with millions of children in them. And our world is vastly worse. And that's the whole point that you have, you have to have reached that point of sort of refusing to look away. But that the movement is to put the child in the basement and leave the suffering on this child and not go to look at them at all. So the story of this child in the basement hooked up for me. There are several different legends that sort of melded together. And there's one that's Mm -hmm. actually more connected to a cave in Spain. And their legend was that seven scholars would be allowed to come and study for a year and the schoolmaster would give them all sorts of forbidden arts. And Mm -hmm. then at the end, six of them would leave, but the last one out the door, the last graduate would be taken by the schoolmaster who was the devil. That one student's soul would be forfeit to pay for all the others. And that connected for me with with a child in a basement. It's the sense of, but who takes that bargain and why, what is this city that's built, that's built on this terrible bargain? And in a way, Elle is one of those who walk away from Omelas. So that is one of the major, major influences, I would say. Naomi Novik, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. Terrific. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. 